Um, okay, thank you, um, Rabbi Strauss. Thank you for the shul for uh, hosting uh, the Sabbat Midrash over Shabbat. This is a long-standing relationship, and I'm glad as we uh, all emerge from the pandemic to uh, begin rebuilding that relationship at full uh, at full strength. Uh, it's always wonderful to speak here. Um, both because um, if you have a wonderful alum of the Summer Midrash as your rabbi, uh, which is uh, wonderful also as my debt to uh, Rabbi Helfinger, Allah HaShalom. Um, what I'm doing today, what I want to do this morning, um, is uh, I should mention I've written a book. <laughs> it looks like this. It's available, it's available on Amazon. It's called Divine Will and Human Experience. You will know it in commonality with the title of, uh, of today's share, which uh, is intended to share with you uh, some of the ideas in the book, and if that inspires you to go buy the book afterwards, that's fine. Uh, I, wanted, I want to, um, specifically, in the summary of Midrash, we've, uh, we've already spent um, two sessions just talking about specific chapters of the book, chapter one and chapter eight. Uh, the fellows have uh, produced a wonderful first podcast on chapter one, and I hope there'll be one on chapter eight soon, and then we'll put it out together. So I want to share with you, uh, that has been enormously valuable to me, um, and to recognize how much, um, you know, what I succeeded in conveying and what I still need to think about, um, both in terms of the, the content and in terms of how to convey it. Um, so I want to share with you uh, some thoughts about chapters one and chapter eight that way in light of what the fellow said. And then I want to try presenting chapter 13 to you, um, de novo, and, we'll, and you can play the role of the fellows and point out all the weaknesses and all the places where you're not convinced. Um, and occasionally something that actually moves you, perhaps. Uh, also, chapter 13, I think, has, has a um, relevance to the three weeks in it, right? Wait, I think it's just about right. Uh, you know, it's not supposed to be too, too heavy three weeks, or only three weeks, it's not nine days yet, uh, but, um, but enough to get into the spirit. Okay, so chapter one begins as follows. Um, the game of freedom is not zero-sum. There can be more or less freedom in the world. Okay, right? meaning that uh, it's not the case always that... Um, that it's just a question of who has freedom in the world. Right? The actual amount of freedom in the world uh, can, can increase, and hopefully that's not the same thing as the increase of entropy. Um, it's also not an altruist game. Giving up my freedom may diminish yours as well. Okay, so you might think, let me just surrender my freedom, and that way everyone else's freedom will gain. That would work in a zero-sum game. If you surrender your freedom, someone else will gain. But uh, in, in the real world, surrendering your freedom often means creating mechanisms that allow people to take away other people's freedom as well. Um, so it's not a game where you, where you think, okay, I, I can give up my freedom. No, actually, often fighting for your own freedom is necessary for preserving other people's freedom as well. Um, and then there's an essential distinction that Isaiah Berlin made between freedom from and freedom to. Uh, freedom from is when there's nothing external constraining me. Uh, right? I, can, right? I, have, I can carry out my own will insofar as I am capable of doing so. And freedom too um, means that I, to that extent I'm free from internal constraints. Right? I, right? That there's nothing within me. There's no capacity limiting my, uh, limiting what I'm um, what I'm able what I'm able to do. So what the what the students asked, uh, really great questions about it. Number one was um, is the distinction that Isaiah Berlin made, but that I that I pushed between freedom from and freedom to, anything more than a word game. Right, if we replaced freedom two with opportunity or something like that, would that really would that would that really change the meaning? And so, by right, all the assertions I'm making about the equations involving freedom, uh, maybe those are just maybe those are just word games and not actually saying something substantive. That all the, that all these are the same sort of thing, and that we can 
we can't, when that we need to consider the relationship among them as opposed to two entirely separate things. Um, second question uh, was personal experiential, right? Is that, uh, this, that when you say halakha is about freedom, right? So I'm quoting, obviously, right? Ein ben charin elamisho there on the bottom. The, uh, the quote from uh, Kenyan Torah, the, you know, the parak six of, of, of Avot is on the bottom. Ein ben charin elamisho right? Karut al-luchot means cherut al-luchot. Um, but experientially, people experience halakha as confining. So is that just wrong, right? We're, we're doing halakha wrong if we say that halakha is about restriction as opposed to about freedom. And I argued in the um, area of the book, right, at the end of the chapter, is that we should take this actually as a theme, necessity of halakha, that um, if what you're doing is not, is not increasing freedom and is not aimed towards maximizing freedom, then you're doing it wrong. And if that's the case, so then a reasonable argument is we must be doing it wrong. Because, uh, right, because the way people experience halakha often is as a set of, uh, a set of restrictions. Um, if you ask people, you know, if there were no halakha in your life, would you be freer or more confined? Most people would answer that they would feel freer. There are things they could do that they cannot otherwise do. Uh, so those are, right, so those, are, those are, I think, really powerful, uh, really powerful questions. And I wrote the chapter to take them, on head, you know, take them head on. Right, the goal is to try and convince you that despite that, actually halakha is and should be about freedom. So I want to start by, I want to start by making the beginnings of an argument, some of which is in the book and some of which is not, to try and, try and flesh that out. Uh, the, argument that, the argument that I make in, um, is a, in the book is as follows. That the, the Torah begins with creation. And at the moment of creation, God is absolutely free. And then God creates, and his creation ends up with the creation of other free beings. And the existence of other free beings, by definition, limits God. Now there, right now there are things that God cannot do, um, both because there are beings who might resist his will, and more because God has ethical obligations towards the being he's created. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to frame that as God's choice of freedom to over freedom from. All right, that God, that initially, God had, free, had, had um, freedom from all constraints. There were no other wills. And this is the position of the angels. This is why the angels tell God not to create human beings. Um, but God doesn't have freedom to engage in relationships because there is no one else to relate to. All right, so that's one kind of argument that the, that the Torah itself, the Torah itself frames, uh, right, frames the, all of, all of um, God's will is framed around, choi- around choices, around the dis- choices between, you know, with, on the one hand, you're supposed to be like God, so I think, oops, the Rosh said the idea is to be like God, and to be like God is to have been completely free, and then in some ways to choose freedom to over, um, over freedom from. Um, now, the danger, of course, is that human beings will decide that they want to be completely like God and to be absolutely free of anyone else's will. How does it call a, um, a Nietzschean temptation? That, the, the, right, that the, the goal of each human being should be to as free as, be as free as possible, and then you fall into the error of believing that to be free as possible uh, means to be free from the constraints of others, and so you need to control others in order to sustain, in order to maximize your own freedom. Uh, practically, it doesn't work very well because you end up spending all your time trying to take away other people's freedom, and you have no actual, right, you have no actual freedom too because you spend all your time trying to defend your freedom from. 
Um, but it's also a uh, it's also a moral failure. Um, and I I want to try I want to try to um, try to make one further argument in this in this chapter. All legal systems are restraints on freedom. Right? That's a that's a given. Right? It's halachas. Halacha is not unusual. Uh, right? If you took away American law, so Americans would be freer in the short run. Right? You could do all the things that American law forbids. But in political theory, um, right, you, have, you, you, need, you need to justify right, to justify the existence of restrictions, and you do that by means of some kind of uh, legend of a social contract, which exists in one of two forms. One, is, uh, one of the, is the Rousseau form, which argues that the social contract is in fact nothing about giving up freedom from in order to attain freedom to. Uh, and the other is the Hobbesian version, which says that actually the idea that without law you would have freedom from is an illusion. And all you would have, all you would have in, a, in a world without law is uh, a war of all against all, and life in the state of nature is nasty, brutish, and short, in his, uh, in his famous line. So you need law to structure relationships, and I think we all understand that, um, that law in the structure, in the structuring of, of ben adam l'chaveiro, in the structuring of relationships between human beings, um, amongst human beings, involves surrendering some, in, surrendering some freedom in order to gain more. And we evaluate political systems in many ways by that, right, by the, the effectiveness of that choice. To be, right, it, that it's not individually, each of us may feel restricted by the laws, but as a society, we, right, we understand that we are freer because there is law. So that, that's, that I think is, a, is an essential framework, whether you understand that in a pure Rousseau sense or you understand it uh, more in a Hobbesian sense that law is necessary because otherwise everybody would be seeking uh, the, to maximize their own freedom at the expense of others. Uh, so the idea I want to raise, just as an idea, is um, what happens, right, the, the restrictions that people feel, the restrictiveness that people feel around halakha uh, is mostly because we already have another system of civil law, and so we right, and so we already have an ordered society. We don't right, we don't perceive much of much of halachic civil law is not perceived as contributing to that because it's already imposed on a different civil law, and that's a challenge as to what the purpose of halachic interpersonal laws are when society is already structured by other forms of law, and it's not as it's not as obviously necessary. But the more challenging question is. What would happen if the relationship between God and human beings was unbounded by law? Right, that's, the, that's the question I want to put out, is that, right, is that we, we, think, right, we often think, uh, we, we think of the way in which we experience halakha as individuals. We don't think of it as the way in which a society relates to God, uh, which we can gather from the analogy to, um, the analogy to civil law is not the right way to think about the, it's not the right way to think about law. Um, and then secondly, we don't actually think often, and maybe the result will be backwards or not, right? About whether the result of an unbounded relationship with God would in fact be complete religious freedom, or whether there are ways in which an unbounded relation, unstructured relationship would lead with all, you know, all mutatis mutatis, all changes being necessary would lead to a relationship that was ungovernable and actually, um, and actually lead either to people restricting each other 
or to somehow to a dysfunctional relationship with God. So I would just throw that out. I think that's a challenge that should have to be met if I'm going to long-term sustain the thesis about halakha being about freedom, that in some way it has to be that the, that the ways in which the, the halakhot bin adal makom, which are the ones that we most experience as restrictive, are actually there, are actually, are actually about creating certain capacities, and not just about freedom too, that's the easy answer, uh, rather than an enabled relationship with God in ways that would not otherwise be enabled. I think that to say that that's the only answer you need uh, is cheating. So I think it has to be some way which crea- which it creates um, a certain kind of freedom from as well. But I need work doing that. Okay, yes? Um, are you asking a very nice question in terms of what would society, society let's say, not the individual, society, look like if we thought our relationship with God on a ritual level was not God by law? Or are you asking what would our societal, very real relationship with God look like if uh, I think I'm asking mostly the second, and part of the question I'm asking is whether the first is an illusion, in the same way that the state of nature is, is a fantasy. I mean, the first is almost a testable theory, and that we call it society. Well, right. That's what. I, that's what I so you have lots of other societies that. In that so, like, there are societies out there in the real world. Okay, I think that's a, that's a version of that argument. And I think, you know, the, I'm not sure that there are, in fact, other societies. It's part of the question is whether those societies just have unwritten laws, uh, which are imposed by other people on you, if you want to remain a member of that society. Um, right, so it's not obvious. That could be the conclusion of your question, not the premise, right? If they insist that there is no even unwritten law binding you to God, but then the result is that they bind law on you, then that is the testable answer to your question. Yes, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's the case. Yeah, I, I am very influenced by this marvelous scene in George Bernard Shaw's *Man and Superman*, where there's you know, there, there's an argument among the revolutionary brigands, having ideological arguments, and the the, um, the two kinds of socialists get up and start screaming at each other, and the, the anarchist gets up and shouts, "Order, order!" All <laughs> 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 uh, right, that, that's always that's always had an impact on me as a as a question of how sustainable that position um, really is. Yes. Sir. Those roles. And that's it's, it's just apples and oranges. And so, so 
I, like, I don't think it's a, I don't, I, I don't think applying the question, how does halakha as a legal system create freedom work when we're only thinking about our time here and there? Um. I would say that you, know, you, you really, if the question, the critique is that it's also, right, when you're thinking about the system as a whole, you can't think of it as just or idea. Absolutely so. Um, I think that one of the big challenges we have, um, and I, I quoted this to the fellows rec um, recently, I, I know this from Rabbi Michael Broid, who quoted it as a machloket between uh, Justice Elon and Rabbi Rachman, Shalom, that as the question of whether Mishpat Ivri should be incorporated into Israeli law. Where Justice Elon said, well, take every little bit of halakha you can and get, and get, it, into, get it into Israeli law bit by bit. And so the, so the system was set up that if you don't have, if there's no British Mandate law or Jordanian law or common law, then you're allowed to quote Talmud. And Justice Elon, you know, mysteriously, found, often found there were cases where there's no Jordanian law and no British Mandate law and no common law and quoted Talmud. Um, Rabbi Rachman argued, as conveyed to me, that halakha doesn't function atomistically, and if you put in one piece of a legal system into another legal system, as opposed to, even if the, the system you're, you're getting it from is wholly just, but it's only just in context, and pieces don't work together, and therefore he argued, and therefore he argued that um, it was a mistake to try and put little pieces of halakha into the Israeli legal system, because you were just going to get a dysfunctional halakha. Um, so now the challenge we have is, that we are constantly in the position of only putting parts of halakha into practice. Right? We never have the, right, because we, we don't have the option anywhere of a fully halakhic society. And so there may be things that, um, that we do that uh, are, you know, are there to preserve the possibility of a larger system. And we don't, right, you know, but really they won't, they won't work well. Although it's not. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Like we have failed to implement kosher neshbat in the United States um, in any serious way, um, and that's a, you know, whether we should whether we should or shouldn't um, try 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 harder is a fair question. But we we haven't succeeded. And yeah. The better in terms of books to draw, it's not more than a day. It's that we have safer ava, safer zman, safer zman, and safer And there's eleven other books in the Torah that we just don't have. And then I think, like, to, to go back to the reason, the reason that I think we have the experience of is negative and constricting is because it's not, like, it's better to say that it's just not laws in that way. It's a series of norms that we learn in the way that it was. Okay. But if it were laws, they would, they would function as, as freeing, is the argument? I think it's possible to imagine that in the full halakhic society, all of the institutions as they could, including the king with the superjudicial powers, including the Sanhedrin with its ability to legislate, then we could, then we would experience it. 
but we experience highly restrictive social norms. So of course it's restricting. Of course it, uh, it doesn't feel free. Okay. I don't think we disagree, although it takes take, take work to, uh, to, to play out. That, uh, so that's, that's useful to me, because I have to figure out whether we're just saying the same thing from different angles. This makes me think of the blue laws. I mean, when I was growing up, you yeah. would go to the mall on Sunday shopping. Uh, you know, I mean, again, it was a Christian religious, you know, uh, a lockup, so to speak, if you want to call it, right. that became a civil law. And you could say in Israel, uh, there's restrictions, you know, about having public services on Shabbat. So again, I'm just saying that's what the civil and the, and the halakha kind of blend. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it sometimes gets undone, obviously, which it has. That's right, and blue laws are an example where, you know, where if you know, a lot of the ways people perceive them as restrictive is because it was another religion imposed on a system that they already had, right. whereas they might very well, had they been setting up a system from scratch, said, you know what, it would be a good idea not to have this, but because it was Christian, right. Right, it felt like an external imposition, especially if, right, if you kept Shabbos and the blue laws were organized around Sunday, right, those are, right, those are, right, or you're a Muslim. Okay, um, I, do th I do have to say like there's one, you know, there's one uh, I think pretty clear enough community that if you, just keeping the idea of freedom in mind, I should have said it, you know, that it's not just, it's not just Bresha, but obviously it's Yat Mitzrayim, it's the other narrative framework for the, uh, for Halakha. So you have two, right, so you have two frameworks that, that are about freedom, and I think that guides you in understanding Halakha, but there are places where, you know, where we do have Halakha social norms function as a sort of law, and which we need to think about, and the easy example are Agunot, where, right, which is one of the rare cases where we genuinely have capacity to restrict people's freedom, uh, and we don't do it well. Um, and we need to be thinking, we need to be thinking really hard about, okay, right, you know, is it really, is it, if the goal of halakha is freedom, so at some point when we're not accomplishing any of our other goals, if we're not, um, we need to figure out better ways of making sure that halakha does not egregiously result in a lack of freedom. Um, okay. These, I think, are great lead-ins to, um, to, to where I'm going. Maybe it'll actually be a common theme to the whole share. Uh, okay, chapter, so chapter eight, returning, turning to page two of the, um, page two of the book, all right? So um, I, have to read the first, I have to read the first sentence just for fun. Every once in a while, a section of Tanakh comes and just smacks you upside the head like a flounder. That's an experience I'm sure that all of you have, that all of you have, have had, this the sense when you suddenly you find something and just whack. Um, Okay, so here's right. This is um, at some point this year, I read Yecheskel Mem Zayin Chaf Alta Chaf Gimel, and Yecheskel, and it says the following: You must divide this land to yourselves to the tribes of Israel. It will be that you will make it fall by lot as a, as a homestead, as an achuzah, so as an achalah to yourselves and to the converts who dwell among you, and who have sired children in your midst. They shall be to you like the Israch of, of the children of Israel they will get nachalot by, by lottery in the midst of the tribes of, of Israel. And I just realized, wow, you know, I, I must have read this passage at some point earlier, and I just had never noticed it. My goodness, right? It says that um, in Yimot HaMashiach, converts have hereditary land in, the land, in, in Israel. And wow. Because you know, certainly, you know, I have always been bothered, at least as long as I can remember, by the, um, by the apparent contradiction between all the statements that say, often in the context of converse, Torah there has to be one Torah for you, and, right, that we have to have absolute equality, equal protection of the laws. I built several chapters of the book out around the concept of equal protection of the laws built on those psukim, and yet there seem to be very explicit disabilities for converse, and, there's the most, you know, the, and in, in, uh, pure, in pure economic terms, 
and political terms and social terms. The absence of a uh, the absence of hereditary land seems to exclude you from the base community, and so it's just flippy to realize I had never understood that the um, that that was only exists in this world and doesn't right. It's not doesn't exist in the messianic era. And what does that mean? What does it mean for that halacha to shift in right in Pardon? In modern urban Uh, so you want to claim so you want you want to claim the agrarian society, but I, you know, to me that's not the interesting question is not that. The interesting question is why right why why did we change it if it wasn't right if we thought it was okay in the original Nakala, right, in the sec, right, not to give converts hereditary land, why do we suddenly think what changes between now and then that all of a sudden things have to shift? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, but wouldn't it be easier to handle it if there were fewer converts? You just give them a... Well, it's, not, it's not as big of an issue. It's not as big an issue. Uh-huh. Okay, it just wasn't... wasn't, wasn't did would say that, that the original Chalunga was only the game. Right? Because Matantola the paradigm of gamers. Okay. <laughs> and yet, we see they exclude some kind of game. Yes? Okay, so it, it's right. It, it's administratively much easier to right to to solve the problem if you, right if you don't have ongoing conversation. Yes, of it. Um, I mean, I I would just take what he answered a little bit further. It's not just that there are more comforts in the future. It's that the Portion of the temple city. 
Okay, so I'm going to say something that I think can either bracket or include everything everyone else has said. So I'll see if it works. Um, there, is a, um, there is a dialogue that I think you're probably all um, familiar with in which Moshe tries to convince Chovev, who may or may not be the, exactly the same person as Yisro, to stay with, right, to stay with the Jews and in the Midbar. And one of the things that he says to him is, Ve'yisolanu le'inayim. You will be our eyes, which is a, which is a, puzzling, which is a puzzling phrase. Um, Chazal pick up that the word Ve'yisolanu uh, le'inayim resonates with the, the Parsha of the Parhelein Devar Shel Tzibur, the, sacri- right, the, sac- the, the sacrifice brought on behalf of the, when the whole community errors, where they understand that something is hidden from the eyes of the, the eyes of the kahal, the eyes of the kahal is the Sanhedrin. And based on that, what they understand the dialogue between uh, the dialogue between Moshe and Yisro to hit at one point is when Yisro says, "I want to leave," and Moshe says, "I'll put you on the Sanhedrin if you stay." Uh, now that has in, that has additional issues in terms of to what extent converts are eligible for membership of the Sanhedrin, which is also an issue of Torah which I, I've dealt with in another paper. But this seemed to me like this seemed to me like a you know a fascinating moment, right? Where you where you, where you offer somebody that? Why would you offer that to Israel? Um, right? And is that is that doing more than just trying to bribe him by offering him high office? We're like, we're not so enthusiastic about the convert who comes to Hillel and says, "Convert me," you know, on condition I'd be a Kohen Gadol. In the end, he does, right? Because we assume that he learns. I'm not fit to be going good old, but right. But Yisrael apparently actually gets a seat. So I want to read the whole dialogue between Moshe and Yisrael there, as um, and I think that it's a plausible reading. But I don't, I don't have the. Um, I'm not, not going to do it in depth literally here. That um, Moshe says to Yisrael, and this again, this is in Chazal. Um, you right, you are a you know a marvelous PR coup for us. Uh, you know, a leader of another nation who comes and believes, you know, hears about the story and comes to God. So you have to stay, because otherwise, right, that'll be right, that'll be shattering to us. People say he came and he was, you know, and it wasn't as good as he thought it was. So we really can't afford to have you leave. So we need you to stay. And yes, right, and, and you believe it. So why would you leave? And Yisra says to him, Yeah, I would, I would stay, except that part of what attracted me was this idea of, you know, that you, that you were going to be the people of Tarachat Yelachem that abolish these sorts of social distinctions. And here it is, and, I, and right now you're, you're, right, you're, bring, you're saying, what, we come with us to Israel, and what am I, what's going to happen in Israel? I'm going to be a second-class citizen. So why would I stay? While we're in the desert, that's one thing. But go with you into Israel, because in the desert, we're all equal. But once, we're, once, once we go into the land, my children are disadvantaged. Right? Why would I join that? And far, rather than being a, a badge of, uh, of honor to you, I'm going to be a badge of shame. Everyone will look at it and say, look, that's the person who came and they, right, and they, and they leave them without, right, without equality in the society. And Moshe says to him, you know, but that's what God said. What am I supposed to do? So actually, that's not what Moshe, Moshe first offers him, offers him some, some kind of public land that hasn't been distributed, land that's set aside for the Beit HaMikdash until the Beit HaMikdash, or all those dialogues. But in the end, what I want to argue uh, is that what Moshe says to him, look, what the Torah means is decided by the Sanhedrin, and this is what we've decided so far. You, right, if you think this contradicts Torah Yelachem, well, you know what, we'll, right, we'll put you on the Sanhedrin and you get to make your argument. And they put him on, you know, guess what, it's a minority opinion and it just stays in the record for, um, but eventually, right, eventually it wins and that's what Yechezkel is. Right, Yechezkel is, is the triumph of Yisro's moral position 
uh, over, uh, over time. I don't know any other explanation as to why the halacha would change between, um, you can say, yes, you know other explanations, right? But those are all reasons that people, I want to argue, right? that people can say, okay, now, now we're going to adopt this position. They're not sufficient in and of their own, but there are ways in which people can say, well, something has changed enough that now we can change, right? Now we can, now we can change our understanding because always when you, whenever you shift your understanding of the law, it's going to be related to changes in circumstances. Um, so I want to argue that that's where, that's, 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 that's the, the explanation is, not un, the underlying explanation is not so much that things changed as that a position as to the meaning of Torah uh, over time won. And that position won because Yisro was given um, a seat on the Sanhedrin. And that's an amazing thing because it's Moshe acknowledging that the per, part of the purpose of the Sanhedrin is to preserve moral critiques and not just to, and not just to continue the system as it is. Uh, right, when someone comes along who, right, who has standing with you, you have enormous respect but disagrees with you about something, so the job, what you want to do is bring them into the conversation, not to, right, not to exclude them and say, go away as fast as you can. But I thought that has, um, right, that, that both sides of this, the Israel agrees, I thought that both sides of this are a, a powerful modern lesson as to how we should handle um, critiques from people um, of halakha who still, want, who still agree to be bound by halakha. I think it has to go both ways. You have to agree to be bound by halakha. If Yisro had left and said, no, I'm sorry, I'll come back when, I, I'll come back when you give me the share of land, then converts would never have had a share because there's nobody making the argument and people would be right to say, you're not really committed to the system. And on the other hand, um, to, say people, to tell people, until you agree with us, you can't be right, even if you're willing to be part of the conversation and be bound by the system until then, uh, right, that's also wrong. So we have all sorts of issues, I think, in uh, modern issues in, um, obviously, about gender and sexuality, most, most, um, most, uh, most obviously, but I think there are many issues where there are people who are willing to live within the, the bounds of halakha so long as they're allowed to express their, their, their discomfort. And we often make the mistake of trying to, of, trying to, of, dri- of driving such people away. Um, and on the other hand, there are people who refuse to join because they say, look, if you don't agree with where I am right now, then I, everything else in the system is meaningless and I have no interest. And, whether we, and sustaining a point where we can say, look, we, we can all agree that the system is not perfect. We don't agree about which ways the system is not perfect. Because, right, because right, that, that's, right, if, we all agreed, if we all agreed something was imperfect, we would have changed it already. Pardon? Yeah, I think we would at least be working towards changing it. Yeah, I think I, I think pork is yummy, and it's wrong to it's wrong not to eat pork are two different things. Yeah. Okay. Well. All right. So let's decide that it's, you know for environmental reasons, pork for everybody to make get their protein mealworms. Yeah. Well, then I think we'd probably be be be, be creating artificial mealworms by now and talking about why our mealworms are not really their mealworms. Uh, yeah, we'd try, and maybe it would work, and maybe it wouldn't. There's a there's a legitimate, powerful inertial presence in law. I don't think we should pretend you know, that that law is, is made de novo, and it, look, it takes Yisro uh, all of time, right? Mashiach still hasn't come, and and Congress still still don't have a share of the land, but it's a really cool thing that they will. Well, unless the Sajid reverses it again. Actually, right now, you know, Congress has as much share of the land as anybody else. Yeah. So in practice, we don't have it, but it, uh, I, you know, I, I how many of you knew this before I quoted before I started this? 
future. About the future of Congress. Which it seems to me there are other sources, and I, I don't know this source, but I know other sources that seem to say equally surprising things. No, but with this one specifically, How, did you know it? But I asked you, will, will converts have a share, will have a hereditary share in the land in most of Mashiach? Would you have said yes? You would have said yes? Anyone who said yes is a fault, is if they claim to be a prophet, has to be a false prophet, because they go against the Torah, which is a consistent issue. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. So, I, so I mentioned in the chapter, this is. With the chapter of Yekeskel, whether I would say then or even now, that's necessarily going to be literally what happens. Yes, I, a lot of things in Yechezkel, I would have to say, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe Yechezkel doesn't have the right to predict what the Sanhedrin will say. You know, this is what he, what he wants to be. I think it's a powerful metaphor, uh, and I think it's worth thinking about, you know, because it's one of those issues that, you know, that, that should legitimately you know, trouble you. And it just turns out there's a Pusik the other way. Uh, right? that, was, that, was a, that in itself was a powerful thing for me. It's like, wow, I, you know, I, I stood about this for years, and there was a Pusik. I just didn't know it. Um, right, you know, you know, it doesn't look so good for me, but uh, but uh, yeah, but but it's a lesson. Like maybe some of the other things I'm stewing about, uh, there are you know there are also pretty straightforward solutions um, to, um, yeah. So you know, pay attention to that flounder when it comes. Uh, okay, right. Okay, good. Let's let's move down to the uh, to the, the really challenging ones. I haven't thought it through at all yet. Uh, other than those other chapters, this is chapter this is chapter thirteen. Um, so it begins right, that, that we have that we have this distinction between um, halacha and agadah that is a problematic distinction in terms of it's a problematic distinction just in terms of <coughs> literary units in the Talmud it's a problematic distinction in terms of almost every text and yet it's hard to live without it um, we acknowledge that right many texts can't be either halacha agadah there are right there are legal analyses that treat you know, fantastical narratives as legal precedents. There are narratives which revolve around around the issue of law, um, but it's always important to create expectations because the way you get meaning is by is against the background of expectations. So I quote T. S. Eliot: "Tradition exists only against the background of what's expected. Without um, without tradition, you can't have creativity because creativity is a change from what's expected. If there's nothing expected, then you won't distinguish between what's creative and what's not, uh, which is related to the point in the first chapter about freedom." Um, so the question I have is, what about, um, what about purely hypothetical law? I imagine a law that we, that we never intend to implement, and I'm, I'm sure all of you are going to the, big, to the famous examples off, offhand, I'm going to get there. Right, but what do we, what do we if, suppose we, if we have a discipline in our heads which is categorized as law, but is never supposed to happen. So where does that fall on the boundary between halacha and agadah? And I want to problematize that using a, um, a very specific example. So one of the, one of the examples famously that, um, that, we, um, that we talk about never happening is, it's right, so three famous examples. One is the Ben Sorero Mureh, um, right? The, 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 the sugya itself is on, um, as well do it, it's on page six of the current, uh, page six, page five. Page five in Hebrew, page six, page six in English. Um, right, so the Gemara begins by, by quoting a, a, um, an interpretation of Rabbi Yehuda's position in the Mishnah, which understands Rabbi Yehuda's position as meaning that you can only become a Ben Sorer Moreh if, um, if, the, if the parents are identical in height, voice, and, um, and appearance. So the says, why, right? And that's based on a, a, a really difficult verse to get to that point. And then the Gemara says, okay, we have a Brighter. The Brighter says the Ben Sorer never never was and never will be. 
what position is that following? It's following that position that the parents have to be identical. Or maybe it's following a position of Shimon who believes that parents would never do it. Okay, then the Gemara says, what about Nirani Dachat? Uh, right, the city that's, get, that's, that, um, right, that's executed on mass because it worships idolatry. So there again, right, there again there's a bright that which says it never happened. Um, who is that position? That position is Rabbi Yezer. Because Rabbi Yezer said that, the, that you cannot create Nirani Dachat if it has even one mezuzah in the city. Because right, cause you have to burn everything in the city and you can't burn a mezuzah. And right, usually the point is say, you know, the, like a whole city and no Chabad. There must be right. There must be at least one mezuzah. Uh, there must be at least one mezuzah in the city, so you can't possibly create create Nirani Dachat. And the third example is a bayit hamenuga. The third example is a house that uh, gets sarat. And the house that gets sarat is is sort of the anomaly there because we have a certain kind of moral or psychological revulsion against the idea of parents bringing their children to death, against the idea of wiping out an entire city, and so we understand why why moral pressure might bring someone to say, this never was, never will be. But who? Why? Like a bite of all the things, you know, ask my students sometimes, you know, here's 613 mitzvot. List them in order of the ones you would rather never see happen. And bite doesn't show up as number three. It doesn't show up as number 80. <laughs> probably, probably, you know, probably, probably somewhere down to the 300s or something. Right, so, right, so why is it, so why is it something that's lohaya v'lo So I want to bring in another complication. Uh, about that. So, as to how we read it in Halakha and Agadah. So, halakhically, so far as I can tell, Bayit HaMenugah, the, the leprous house, is treated exactly like any other halakhic area. There are two Prakim of Mishnah that are just perfectly conventional Prakim of Mishnah. There is a massive Sifri Midrash Halakha on it that, go, right, that goes on for five units that looks, so far as I can tell, just like every other section. Of Midrash Halacha, um, so it looks like it's law, like we treat it, right, we treat it just like ordinary law. And the interesting question is why. However, there's also uh, there's also um, an amazing Vayikra Rabba. So this takes us back to page three. Vayikra Rabba says the following. Right, so the Psukim are we're on page three again. Kisavo Eretz Kenan Asher Anino Sein Lachem Lachuza Venasati Negat Zerad Beveit Eretz Achuzat Chem Uva Asher Lo Habayit Vigid Lakohen Limur. When you arrive in Canaan, which I'm giving you as an, as an achuzah, um, and I will place a negat sarat beves eretz achuzat chem, and the one to whom the house belongs will come and say to the priest as follows, something like a plague saying appears to me in the house. So there's some odd things about this, right? Beit eretz achuzat chem, you might expect batei eretz achuzat chem, plural. Um, it's, right, um, right, there's, so there's a, right, there's a house in the land, rather a house of the land, Okay. Vayikra Rabba provides like a single answer to all the textual anomalies. It says, Beves Eretz Achuzat Chem. So why is it singular and why is it the house of the land? Because it's the Beit HaMikdash. And who is the one at Shiloh Abayit? That's God. And who's the Kohen he's talking to? Yermia. And right, and what's, what's the nega in the house? The nega in the house, of course, is, is Avodah Zarah. And we're talking about the destruction of Bayit Risham. Right, so that's an amazing, comprehensive um, explanation of it. Now that, um, right, that is obviously the Lagadah. It doesn't tell you anything about law. Right, it just tells you a moral story. But the interesting question is that if you look at, uh, this is page four, if you look at the Gemara and Yoma, uh, the Gemara and Yoma t- uh, has a whole sugya in which it, right, there's a back and forth about what, about what exactly all these terms mean, but it ends up 
that for two reasons, it's entirely clear and everyone agrees that the Beit HaMikdash cannot become a Beit HaMinugah. Either because, uh, either because a house that is set aside for Kedusha, all those houses that are set aside for Kedusha cannot be it, or because nothing in Yerushalayim can become a Beit HaMinugah. So what do we do? Right, what do we do with, a, um, with an Agadah that is structured as a denial of a consensus halacha? Now, on some circumstances, right, so I, t- I talk about a, um, a willing suspension of halachic disbelief as, as part of a technique of Agadah. One of the techniques Agadah does is it says, well, what if one halacha were different? And it, right, like, you know, in the way, a certain novel will say, like, what if, you know, what if gravity did, what if, what if we had a world without gravity? Right? What, if we had, what if we had time travel? What if we had telepathy? Right? So, right, so that sometimes Agadah just does that. Like, I say my great example is what if it were what if it were the case that you that you could be bound to an oath that would, that required you to kill to kill your daughter. It's not the halacha, and no one should think it's actually the halacha. But for the purposes of the narrative, it's um, right. You can suspend that one halacha. But that's a, like a whole wholly different thing when you're talking about a halacha that's imaginary in the first place. Right? What's the point? Right, if the if the whole right, if there's a halacha, if halacha is intended in practice, so we can say, okay, there's a there's a purpose to the imaginative exercise of thinking about of thinking about what if halacha were different. But if the halacha itself is imaginary, right, it's never intended to be in practice. So what's the purpose of writing a story that suspends a halacha that's never going to be practiced anyway? Right, if the whole purpose of the other halacha was Josh Vikabil Schar was to learn it, and now you're going to take it away even in the realm of learning? So I was very puzzled by this, um, very puzzled by this notion of a uh, of a an agada that suspends an imaginary halacha. Um, do you want to say something? Yeah, How does it do that? Aha. Uh-huh. I don't know. That didn't convince me, but okay. <laughs> what did you want to say? I was saying this is a Maslokas. Um, about whether it's an imaginary halakha. So you could then, in the same way that we got the Yamara asked, when saying it's an imaginary you could say, um, regarding because it can't affect the Beit HaMikdash, what we see in the future is that if the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed, any lesson you thought you learned about the HaMikdash is amplified because we saw the very real effect of one building that was destroyed. Right? It might be telling you to keep the lesson that you learned from the Halakha that came out of the Beit HaMikdash and telling you that that is true in general, that the Forbond was so great that even that lesson could not have applied there and it needs to be a different lesson about the Forbond. So it could take one okay. conclusion and amplify it differently in a different context. Okay, that's, um, that's very elaborate. <laughs> um, that's very elaborate. It could make a fine dress up. Um, so I wanted to point out one other thing, which is, right, which, um, yeah, which is that Rabbi Soloveitchik uses, um, in Halafi manner, Soloveitchik famously uses this, the, the claim that the law never has been, never will be, 
as a um, right as the sort of the, teaching you the, the key lesson that the that the discipline of studying halacha is distinct from the discipline of practicing halacha. <coughs> and in fact, he uses the Beit Hamikdash. It's page eight. He uses the Beit Hamikdash as the example, right? That the um, the concept of the Day of Atonement of the Night of Passover is an ideal concept, and halachic man sees the Day of Atonement in the resplendent image of the glory of the sacrificial service of the Day of Night of the Night or the Night of Passover in all its majesty at the time when the temple was still standing. Right, so the Rav argues that for the Isha Halakha, the Beit HaMikdash can't be destroyed, can't be destroyed. Because the Beit HaMikdash, for him, is, right, is for, the, for Halakhic man, is the product of reflecting on Hilfot Beit HaBechira in the Rambam. And right, you, don't actually, you don't actually need to be in the Beit HaMikdash to experience it. Um, and that's like a very powerful notion on the one hand, and on the other hand, a very, um, there are things like missing, like the smell, and the taste and the adrenaline rush and all sorts of things like that. So I really like wonder whether the blood. the blood, yeah, for good or for ill, <laughs> for good or for ill, right? All the all the sense data, uh, all the sense data, all the all the experience. No, is. the real thing. There's a, it, 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 there's a real thing that happens in the Beit Hamikdash. Yes. It so you think? So it says. So what? What's it? So Torah says. So yeah. So also, maybe not that much, but like it just it's that's where that's the those are the weaker points for that essay. Uh, so I spent the essay, but of the, of the usefulness of the idea. Yeah, so I, you know, so I, I spent a lot of my, um, yeah, I guess, my life sort of you know, re, um, in orbit around Yishalacha, so there's very different feelings about it at uh, at different times. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes I think, and I, I think that's just true that the position alluded to earlier that there are no laws which never have been, never will be, is obviously the dominant position in the tradition. Um, and, right, and so the building a whole theology out of the, out of the position the other way is uh, taking an, a momentary shittas yachid, I think I called it on the sheet an epiphenomenon, um, and uh, turning, it, turning, it, turning it into the whole system. Um, and other times I found it a really powerful idea because you know, there's so many things that we don't have. And, uh, it's, and you want to be able to give them meaning, uh, even when they're not here. Otherwise, you know, large parts of the study of Torah become, in the moment, right, you know, meaningful only if you ever get to, to if ever get to keep them. And I don't think I want to be, and I don't, I don't find the profound meaning of the people who are constantly hoping that it will come true, but it's not meaningful unless it does. Um, so I wanted to point out, you know, when I when I founded the Center for Modern Torah Leadership, so the motto is taking responsibility for Torah. And in some ways, that was an anti-Ishalacha motto, uh, because the idea was that everything you say in the Beit Midrash has real-life implications, and that too often, Ishalacha was used as a way of evading moral responsibility. Um, I say, I just talk about Halacha in the abstract, if it happens to have implications that, for example, diminish other people's freedom, right? that's not my issue, right? because I'm just engaged in, the, in Joshua Kabbalah's and that's all it, and that's, you know, and that's all you need. And so I. I I thought that it was very important to counter that and say, no, you should realize that, in, that when you study things, they have real-world implications. So one of the things that interests me, and I gave, this in, I gave an example of it on page 8, is that we actually derive halachot from the, from the Bayit HaMenuga. Like, just like the Bayit HaMenuga is X, so too, right? That's your Shalmei give there, right? Just, right? just like the Bayit HaMenuga, you become Tameh only at such point, right? Only at such point as you, incre- as you put most of your body in, so too. Uh, but Azar only makes a house tummy when he brings most of the most of everybody in, and there actually are halachot all the way through, scattered through, that are derived from it. So, 
even, even, so you can assign all those positions and say all those are just reflections of the position that it will, that it will, that it, that it will be and, not, and the other position has no trace at all. Um, but it seems more likely, I think, that um, there isn't really a category of things in halakha that have no real world implications. There's nothing that's, right, that's part, right, that even the Baida right, even if you were to say that it itself never happens, it has ramifications in other areas of halakha, which are derived from it and, inter, and interrelate for it, which means that even in the study of, um, even in the study of theoretical, of purely theoretical halakha, you have to be, right, you have to be morally responsible because you have to think about what are the implications going to be in the areas that do happen. Um, that we derive from here. That just intensifies the question of, so then what, are the, what is the purpose of, um, of Agadot that make us think about the halakha, uh, make us think about what if the halakha were different, uh, right? What if the, what if the Beit HaVikdash could become a Bayit HaMenugah? And this, of course, ties into, you know, the whole, the claim that Yerushalayim can't be a Bayit HaMenugah um, seems parallel to the claims of the false prophets that the temple can't be destroyed. Right? Why would you say that the temple can't be a Bayit Because there's something about the, there's something about the temple that, um, that is somehow beyond, right, beyond this kind of, uh, it, can't, it can't be um, desanctified. Um, right? So it's really interesting that the Agadah, which is, in, right, the Agadah says, right, is coming to say, no, you're right, you can't, that the halacha can't be true. It can't really be. That you would think of the that you would think of the Beit Hamikdash as something that is uh, as something that is beyond destruction. So you can think of it as the Agadah if you want as the equivalent of Yechezkel. In a way, right? It's a, it's a prophetic critique of the halacha as it is. And the halacha as the halacha as it is, even if it's a purely theoretical halacha, um, conveys an idea that, or at least that position in the halacha, conveys an idea conveys an idea that the Agadah thinks is just, right shouldn't be allowed to stand. It, if there's anything in this world that is so sacred that human beings are incapable of defiling it, uh, right, we have to recognize that our right, that our potential in in um, our potential in um, um, profanation is uh, right, is at least as great as our uh, potential for sacralization. Um, that could be, uh, or it could be that you know if we were more in a rough cook mode, it's telling us that there. Um, that there is something, um, there is something to that, there is something to that idea. I'm not sure. Um, okay, what I want to leave with, I guess, is what, you know, is what, what I tr- what I tried to show today, and I hope it works. Uh, whether or not you buy the book, <laughs> which is on Amazon, <laughs> uh, you can search my name or Divine Will and Human Experience. And, uh, and you know, if you don't have no bit, if you don't have motives for yourself, you know, it just makes me feel good to see it find the bestseller list. Uh, it have been number one in new releases in or in Judaism Orthodoxy movements on occasion. <laughs> on occasion, and I can't tell you how much people kind of it gives me that you know that I have had a bestseller for ten or fifteen minutes after the first person bought it. <laughs> Maybe after the second one too. Who knows? Like two fifteen minutes of fame. Um, what I want to try and model is. Um, is a, right, is a notion that the discourse of halakha is never wholly distinct from a discourse about values, um, but that you shouldn't be able, but you can't reduce it, right? You have to think about halakha as halakha. Um, at the same time, you have to think about halakha in relationship to values, and when you think it, and that 
there has to be a, that you need both to be able to think about ideas as ideas and values as values and to think about how they play out in the context of a legal system and that's a particularly challenging for halakha which is a legal system in theory but not in practice and which has many parts of it that we can't actually implement right now all of that challenges the way in which we think the way in which we in practice